You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. Hey, everybody. I am hearing from listeners that they are awoken, moved, inspired, and simultaneously weighed down by the podcast. They report that now it is hard to go back to work and see all of the sedated patients on the unit, now knowing what they are really experiencing and what their journeys will be like. I am touched by the depth of compassion and tenderness of all of you. I do this podcast because I know human suffering matters so deeply to you. Yet this podcast is not meant to inflict shame or guilt. Yes, we have to face the reality of where we are at and the harm we are doing. As Dr. Edna said, you cannot correct what you are not willing to confront. Yes, if you have a soul, it will hurt to see patients' perspectives. Yet, Embrace that pain, but use it to turn your vision forward to what can and should be. Use this indignation to inspire others and bring change. I have seen many comments on social media saying, I would love to work in this ICU. Of course, I am biased, but the team members of the Awake and Walking ICU are exemplary. But I have the deepest conviction that the standard of care is replicable in any team that is willing to change to save lives. We need pioneers in ICUs around the world that have this perspective of patient care to create their own awake and walking ICU exactly where they currently are. This is not about any specific hospital. It is about a process of care. Outcomes and standard of care should not vary so drastically between hospitals, and yet they do. Tara nurse from the Awaken Walking ICU, shares with us what she learned while taking a travel contract outside of her home ICU. Tara, thanks so much for coming on with us and uh, being willing to share your insights with us. Can you tell us about your background? Yeah, so I've worked in the Awaken Walking ICU for about five years now as a nurse, um, and I recently took a travel contract as a nurse during COVID too. Um, so I've had experience in an awake and walking ICU and then in, all, in an ICU that um, uses more sedation and most patients aren't up and moving either. So what was it like, especially did you start your critical care experience in the awake and walking ICU? I did. I started there as a new grad. Yep. Uh, same here. Um, or that was my first critical care job. And so that became normal. And so what, what is it like to work in an awake and walking ICU? Um, it's, I feel like you get to build a lot stronger relationships with patients because they're awake, they're moving, you're able to help them through a really difficult time in their life. And like opposed to working with patients who are sedated, um, like I feel like it's kind of easy to lose the humanity in that situation because it feels more like you're taking care of just a body hooked up to machines versus when someone's not sedated, you can interact with them, you know them, you know what they're going through, they can share their emotions and their thoughts. So I feel like um, it's actually really strengthened my ability to be compassionate and care for others um, and relate to what they're going through with patients and stuff like that. Like within Awake and Walking ICU, I feel like your teamwork becomes so much stronger because you're all, like it 
it takes a lot of teamwork to get patients up and moving. So I feel like your relationship with your coworkers becomes a lot stronger because you rely on each other to um, improve patient outcomes. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's uh, not one person can bring all of this change or maintain this culture. Um, and that's what I love about this ICU is everyone has the same vision. Everyone's going to get their patients up and they're all going to help you get yours up. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that is the standard in the awake and walking ICU, right? How often yeah. have you had sedated patients in that ICU? Um, before COVID, I would say, oh goodness, like once every couple of months, I'd say not more than 10 patients every year. And for very unique exceptions, right? Yes. It's usually with, um, with ARDS is what I'd seen it was before. Once they were prone and paralyzed, right? Yeah. So how has it been with COVID? How often are you having patients be awake at some point on the ventilator? Um, I feel like all patients are awake at some point on the ventilator now. Um, We do use more sedation at this point, just because we are having more ARDS patients. but compared to like what I was working with on my travel assignment, we're not sedating nearly as much as other facilities. Um, were you there with Kenneth Hurwitz? Yes, I was. So we interviewed him uh, a couple of us months ago, and he talked about, um, he doesn't remember, but he was awake for those six days on the ventilator, then was prone and paralyzed, and um, was down for about eight days, and then immediately, once he could tolerate being supine, was back on his feet, and was extubated four days later. Um, is that kind of the process that you're seeing with patients there where they're awake up until that point, And then once they have to be paralyzed, they're sedated. And then once they can be supine, they're back rolling. Yes, that's actually, I had a patient this weekend. That's exactly that patient's story. Um, they were up and walking on the ventilator for the two days that they were intubated. And then when the time came that they need to be prone and sedated. They did that for two days. And then as soon as we could supinate them, they were up and moving again. And then, sorry. And then at at this point when I had them, um, they were like a a one person assist in the room. They were almost independent. They hadn't lost much muscle strength at all. They were just ready to go. You know, it's really hard. I mean, we know by research that when patients are sedated, um, that they lose all this muscle and their time on the ventilator is so much longer. And our, our process, it's different even than the A-to-F bundle. We're a lot more aggressive with mobility. And so it's really hard to know how much longer would a patient like that be on the ventilator and how different would their outcomes be? Because we know that they're definitely improved, drastically improved. We can't, the research validates it, but it doesn't accurately reflect the magnitude of difference it makes to have people mobilize that aggressively. Um, did that patient discharge home? I believe at this point they're still hospitalized um, just because they're still on the ventilator and it was just oh. a few days ago. So one person assist while on the ventilator. Yes. I, I just want our listeners to hear that a one person assist because Sarah, I get this question all the time. Well, how many people does it take to get these people up? And I try to reiterate the point that not that many if we catch them early, meaning if we don't sedate them, leave them to rot for a few weeks, then we don't need all the lifts, all the people. It's not this huge fall risk. So you're saying 
even though this person had been prone and paralyzed for two days, they still were able to be a one-person assist after that. Yes. And when I say one-person assist, it was more of like I was just in the room watching his ET tube and the cords while he moved around. If he hadn't been intubated, I would have just, like, he would have been able to move completely by himself. <laughs> that is so great. And, and he wasn't restrained? No, he was not. And that's a question I've gotten as well is um, how do you know when a patient is safe to be unrestrained? So in my experience, what I've done is I make sure that the patient is completely alert and oriented and cam negative. So there's no delirium going on. They're very with it. They're familiar with this, like, like the scenario and the ICU and what's going on. Um, and I think patient education on um, the ET tube and on central lines, art lines, anything else that the patient has in, um, just really reinforcing what the line's there for, how we need to take care of it, how to keep the patient safe. So not pulling on the ET tube, not pulling on any of your other lines, um, and just really setting boundaries with those things. Um, I think after a few days of education at that point, um, you can kind of evaluate if the patient's gonna be compliant with those things and if they're okay to be unrestrained. And I think, um, like when I think back to when I've done it in the past, like I'll watch how the patient does while we're doing mobility. So if we're dangling, I'll watch if the patient goes for any of their lines at all. Or if we're up and walking, I'll see if the patient is going for anything and see if they're following what I've taught them. And then sometimes I'll just sit in the room with them for a while or while I'm like scanning medications or something, I'll let them just be unrestrained and like do some range of motion with their arms in the bed. And then if they're following what I've taught them, they're not pulling at anything, then I'll leave them unrestrained. Um, and then if, when they go back to sleep, if they take a nap, if they go to bed for the night, usually the first night or two, I'll leave them loosely restrained. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not tight, the restraints is tight. And then after a few nights, I've just let them be unrestrained and they've done fine. I haven't had any patients um, self-extubate when I've done that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, not that it never happens, but the research also shows that self-extubation has a strong correlation with sedation. And by sedation, I think delirium, right? We sedate yeah. them, they get delirious, and that's when they get so scary. And so people think, well, none of my patients could be unrestrained, which if they're delirious, they shouldn't be. But you're explaining this process where you are constantly assessing for delirium and you're preventing it. And that's mm -hmm. what allows them to be safe. Do you feel like they protect their tube as well? I do. I've actually had some patients that, um, like this, the first night taking care of them, they'll write notes to me and they'll say, be careful with my tube. Like they're just so worried about it and they'll watch it carefully just to make sure that I'm as careful with it as they are. Wow. And are they scared? Of being intubated or of the yeah or, or just or do they seem like they're traumatized or tense or like in, in terror the whole time being on the ventilator and awake no i think i think um like taking patients that have been sedated and bringing them back they're kind of like a little they feel confused they don't really know what's going on versus if a patient is awake and they've been like they know they've been intubated the whole time they're used to it they're able to use like the reasoning skills um, and being able to cope 
with having the tube in. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully put. And so spending five years in that kind of environment and taking care of patients in that way, what was it like to go as a travel nurse to a totally different environment and culture and standard of care? Well, I was, I was a little nervous at first. So I was going to a way bigger facility, like a teaching hospital that has a, like a big reputation. Um, so I was, I was kind of curious to see how they would do with mobility and how the culture would be with it. Um, and I like compared to like an awake and walking ICU and walking into, um, this, it was just kind of, it was crazy to me how many people were sedated. And then on top of that, how many patients ended up, um, like with the trach and a peg. And it was, it was just a complete culture shock for me to go from what I thought was the standard of awake and walking to, um, a lot more people going to LTACs and SNFs on discharge instead of being able to go back home. And this is a facility that has a reputation for mobility, right? Yes. Um, and produces a lot of really good research. Um, and do you feel like the acuities of the patients were so much more severe that they would warrant sedation? Like if they were in the awake and walking ICU, would they still hit that threshold of max out on the ventilator settings, couldn't oxygenate with movement and therefore needed to be prone and paralyzed? Or do you feel like sedation was being put on much more um, liberally? I think the sedation was put on a lot more liberally. What did that feel like? It feels um, unnecessary, I guess is the way to say it. And it kind of felt like we were damaging patient outcomes. And I know the other people I was working with didn't view it that way, mm -hmm. but coming from an awake and walking ICU to putting someone on sedation and then not being able to move them, it was, it was really hard because I knew how much we were damaging their outcomes. And you're used to watching people walk out of our ICU to the floor and walk themselves out the doors later to go home. Um, and so what was going through your mind when you're watching people get traked and pegged and be totally flaccid in bed and have to go to LTACs? It was, it was kind of sad. Like I would, I would go home and I would just, it was just a complete culture shock for me. I just, it just made me realize how much more important um, like an awake and walking ICU and how much we need to share that message with other ICUs and make that a standard of care. Um, I know that as a nurse, I kind of thought Polly and Louise were um, neurotic, which they are. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I was a travel nurse <laughs> a and I bit. became neurotic too. So how do you think this has impacted your perspective of the big picture of critical care? So I think it's made me more neurotic with my patients as well because like you just hear stories from patients um and it like like being sedated and not being able to move for days they're not able to go back to their jobs they're not able to go home independently versus if they're awake and walking the entire time they can almost return back to their normal life like they're gonna some patients do return home with some deficits but it's just like the difference in outcomes is amazing yeah, and I like, I like that word neurotic. Um, <laughs> it just makes you a, a really powerful advocate when that's how you see it, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and our older nurses that have done this for 30 years, they're so hardcore. I just seen them do so many amazing things. And they started to seem more and more sane to me as I saw what, what the other um, outcomes could be if we don't do what we do. Um, any specific stories or cases that you saw while you were there that impacted you? So I was there, I did um, ICU float pool. A lot of it ended up being um, in like the COVID ICU just because that's what there was a lot of at the time. So I had one patient specifically that really stood out to me. Um, when I had him, he was on high flow. I had him for three nights in a row and I dangled him every night. So at that point he was strong enough to dangle with just my help. He probably could have walked, but I didn't like none of my coworkers were available to help. Um, and I don't think any of them would really want to help just because oh, that sounds bad. I don't think they had the same push for mobility that I did. It wasn't on their top of the priorities. And maybe they wouldn't be comfortable in high flow. Um, the episode previous to this, we hear from uh, a tech that wanted to move people in high flow, but the whole unit had set the standard that no one could get out of bed if they were on high flow. Yeah, and that, like coming from the wake and walking ICU to this one, that everyone on high flow was was moving. It was just, it was crazy. But I would, I dangled with this patient a few nights, um, three nights in a row, and he had baseline dementia. So he was, he was, I think at that point, he was already a little bit delirious too, just because he hadn't slept for a few nights. But after I would help him dangle those nights, he'd like burn enough energy to finally go back to like get some good rest for a few hours. Um, and then, so I had him those three nights in a row. I ended up caring for him in another unit a few weeks later. So at that point, he'd actually been um, intubated for a week in the ICU because of COVID. And then he had transferred out to another ICU. And he, when I cared for him at that point, he wasn't able to move his, um, he wasn't able to lift his arm or his legs or his head at all. And he was very, very delirious, completely disoriented. And it was just watching how, um, like being sedated and immobilized for one week, the effects it had on that patient, it was shocking. And it's kind of haunting even to hear, even though I wasn't there, it haunts me. Um, yeah. Reminded me of a patient that we got in the awake and walking ICU that had been at another facility and had been deeply sedated for 10 days. He had baseline dementia. And so when he came to us, it was the perspective was totally different. Where it was, he has dementia, so he had, we had better take off the sedation. We'd better wake him up and move him. Um, and I'm hearing about people on high flow being on Presidex. And I wonder if it's that kind of patient that you took care of, where he has dementia, he's probably delirious, he probably was a lot of work to take care of, right? Probably trying yes. to move all over the place, a little bit of a safety risk, right? Um, so the inclination is he's not behaving, um, can't take care of him unless he's at least lightly sedated, even on high flow. But you allowed him to get real sleep. Um, but his outcomes, are going to be so much harder. Recovering from delirium with baseline dementia is, um, I don't know that there is really much of a recovery. Um, and so that definitely um, changes quality of life drastically for someone with dementia to have delirium. Um, 
And I think if we all had that perspective that you did where he's agitated, he's uncomfortable, he's confused, that he hasn't slept. So your answer was to move him, to make him yeah. use his muscles so he would actually rest. Did that make your shift easier after you did that? It did. Um, before we would dangle, he was always um, pulling on his high flow, pulling on his IVs. Um, and then once we were done dangling, I felt like he'd burned enough energy to actually relax and get some, get some good rest for a few hours. And then it would, it would start up again a little later, but I think that was just being in the ICU, like you're getting woken up every couple hours. So it's kind of hard. Yeah. Your approach kind of reminds me of my approach with my toddler, right? She's misbehaving. She's not listening to me. She's all over the place. So I make her go and run laps. Yes, that's actually the same approach I use with my daughter. Um, yeah. if, she's, if she's being a wild woman, we go for a couple walks and then, and then she takes a nap and we're good. And it makes your life as a parent easier. And I think as nurses, it can make our shift so much easier to wear people out um, as well as safer. So I think, yeah, that's a very powerful example. Anything else that you saw? I... Um, there was another patient I saw that also had COVID. That's a lot of what I worked with there. Right. Um, but when I had him, he'd been hospitalized for almost three months. And at that point he was already trached and pegged, but he was, um, ventilator dependent and had been pretty much sedated for the whole month, the whole hospitalization for the three months. Um, and had been on and off a few times, but he just wasn't, um, like he wasn't compliant with the vent. He would have coughing fits, these like lots of desaturations. Um, so they just put the, the sedation back on. So when I took care of him, he um, could barely wiggle his fingers or toes. Um, and it was, it was just really sad compared to coming from the awake and walking ICU, um, where we have patients that had been hospitalized for like a month at a time with COVID, but those patients were still mobile and they weren't they hadn't been sedated the entire time. So it was, it was just shocking to see the difference in how um, COVID was being managed specifically, but um, also just ARDS and the standards in different cultures. Yeah, this is a really unique time where we are all across the world, we're treating the same disease. Granted, our baseline um, demographics and health status of our demographics is different from region to region, but we now have like the same disease process to compare outcomes with. Um, and last time I checked the awake and walking ICU, the length of stay was six days shorter than all of the neighboring hospitals in that area. That's crazy. I didn't know that. That's, that's but, actually really impressive. <laughs> you can see why now, right? Yes. So how much does that impact hospitalization costs, again, quality of life, discharge disposition. How often are you guys sending patients to LTACs after COVID? Uh, very rarely. Have you seen anyone go yet? Um, we had one patient that should have gone to an LTAC, um, but there were a lot of complicating factors. But Throughout the whole year of COVID, I think the one patient I've seen that's 
pretty crazy compared to other places where there's a lot more um, patients going out to LTEX. You had to think about it. You had to reflect yeah. on that one patient yes. throughout all your time. And um, elsewhere, it's just assumed, right? You yeah. come to the ICU, you're going to LTEX. And so um, compa- even compared to hospitals in that same region, um, and they're good hospitals doing good things, uh, but this element, this, this culture changes outcomes drastically. And I appreciate your perspective on that now that you've seen it both ways and you went to a good hospital with a good reputation and yet um, maybe not the strongest mobility culture. And uh, on Instagram, I was talk- kind of did a quiz with the followers and we t- talked about how the first um, study that came out was from Polly Bailey uh, your nurse practitioner, right? And, and in your unit, yes. um, published a study that showed that walking on ventilator is safe and feasible. That was first published in 2007 after they had yes. already been doing this process for years. And here we are in 2021 and you can go to any other facility and be shocked by the culture and the standard of care and outcomes. So yeah. I, I actually, um, for my bachelor's degree, I actually wrote a paper on the mobility protocol, um, specifically related to like related to Polly's paper. Um, and it was just crazy because my professor wrote to me, she's like, this paper is like a few years old and I've never heard of this. And I was like, well, it's a standard here. We do it all the time. But it was, it was really interesting to share that perspective with all my, my classmates. Yeah, I was astonished at some of the answers when I asked about does sedation uh, prevent or cause PTSD and does it, does do benzodiazepines um, create more self-exhibitions or less? About 25 to 35% of the answers were wrong, um, which actually is better than expected, but it's still a little bit um, disheartening that we have so much, um, so many, so much misinformation and so many myths in our community still. Um, And yet everyone wants to do the right thing. And once we disseminate this powerful research that's been going on for decades, um, then things will start to change. And hopefully just as you go to a hospital and you kind of expect the same antibiotics to be given or certain vasopressors to be standard, standardized. Someday our mobility will also be standardized and there won't be any more huge shocks, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Well, anything else you would share with the ICU community? Um, I think I just... I just want to tell the other nurses out there who work in ICUs just how important um, mobilization is and how drastic of an effect it can have on patient outcomes, like especially on like their ability to be able to return home someday and be able to go back to work. It's just um, laying in bed for weeks at a time. It's so hard to recover from versus if you're up and moving during all of that. It just, I know for me, if I was hospitalized, I'd want to be up and moving um, so that I'd be able to come home, go back to work, take care of my little girl. And I think if I had those things taken away from me, it would be horrible. And I I just feel so much compassion for patients who have gone through that. Um, And I think that's that's mainly what I wanna share. It just, um, I just really wish that an awake and walking ICU would become the standard everywhere and I do understand like how difficult changing a culture can be in other units and people will look at mobility and say well that's just another thing I have to do on my shift I don't have time for that but it 
if you put in the effort and keep your patient moving when they can already move when they are admitted, then you're, it's not going to be as hard to move them the rest of the time. It becomes easier because you don't have to take four or five people to just get them in a lift and up to a chair. It's just, they're already moving. They don't lose any of that function. They're just, it just makes it so much easier. I love it. And you do it, you've done it for years. And so when anyone tries to dispute whether or not it's possible or doable, you have a powerful testimonial to that. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to share that with us and um, join us listeners onto our um, walking home from the ICU discussion group on Facebook to hear more of Tara's expertise and ask any questions. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.